Welcome to the Thresholds podcast brought to you by Rahamim Ecology Centre. Sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our earth community. This particular recording is the edited interview. We also have longer uncut versions available on our website, along with show notes to accompany each episode. So you find out more about all the ideas, people and books mentioned in the show. He's a Buddhist monastic, public presenter and retreat facilitator, now based at the New Jersey monastery she co-founded, Empty Cloud. She took up this path just two years ago after realising her successful global career in journalism and creative strategy left her feeling still unhappy despite her success. Through her initiative Buddhist Insights and her free weekly retreats open to all, Aya Soma now offers the tools and practices for tuning into ourselves, each other, and the earth community in a way that helps us glimpse reality again and courageously respond to the global crises we are in. I spoke to Aya Soma via Zoom from Bathurst to her monastery in New Jersey. Some thresholds. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, we like to start. The, our conversations by you know thinking about where you are now but also going way way back to your childhood <laughs> uh could you tell us a little bit about maybe some of your experiences as a child that you think were strongly influential that helped you to end up where you are today so i um uh, was born and bred in italy um so the land of catholicism <laughs> yes and uh, the land of um, pasta, which is another religion that we have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, possibly the actual, the one that is really practiced by everyone in the country is really like uh, the, the religion of food. Mm. <laughs> and um, my family wasn't terribly religious, so I didn't um, uh, quite have, I had actually, I had quite a secular upbringing. Mm. But I was always drawn to, you know, asking the kind of like big questions. Mm. So what was my purpose in the world and um, why um, people that I loved and cared about uh, died and why was I supposed to die or why was I living in the, in the first place? Mm. Um, so all of these questions um, somewhat you know, kind of resonated with me and I was always on the quest of uh, looking for answers. And um, I was also very ambitious. So I wanted to uh, find some meaning um, once again and uh, make my life meaningful. So um, I was not terribly ambitious in terms of making money, but I was always very ambitious in terms of, I want to find a job. I want to do a job that really fulfills me. I want to... Um, be in a relationship where I'm truly in love. Uh, I want to be in a place where, mm, you know, I, I really feel comfortable, have friends that I really care about and um, that I have things in common with. So um, that led me from to move to lots of different places within Italy and um, then also in the UK and then come here in the United States. And um, I changed several different jobs, <laughs> changed several different uh, relationships, um, kind of wandered through samsara, as we say in Buddhist um, mm. um, Buddhist circles, for quite a bit. 
And I kind of always found, um, you know, I, I was very ambitious and I pursued all the goals that I had in mind and um, achieved a lot of the things that I had in mind. Um, but there was always, nothing was ever ultimately satisfying. Um, so it came to a point where I had no idea what was next. I still remember it. I was like, I don't know. This relationship is falling apart. This job is um, not, I mean, it, it used to be great, but now it's not great anymore. And um, mm. uh, there was sort of a different type of emptiness. Uh, it was more like um, hollowness, like meaninglessness. Mm. And um, and that's, I guess, the time when um, I encountered the Buddhist teachings. And uh, most importantly, um, I started practicing them. Um, so I went to a retreat um, to um, in Bhavana Society in West Virginia, here in the United States, um, which was a Buddhist monastery. It's a Buddhist monastery. It's actually alive and well. That offers retreats on a monthly basis. And, um, and for the first time, the concept of... Um, I kind of understood how I understood why why I was experiencing that sort of dissatisfaction um, in pretty much everything that I did, and it was because everything is inherently unsatisfying, mm -hmm. and um, we constantly seek meaning um, outside of ourselves. But instead, um, we should be make we should uh, be making every single moment meaningful. So it was a different approach, and for the first time, um, I started working on my mind instead of uh, working on external conditions, and um, that brought lots of lots of peace and lots of happiness. That um, that was kind of um, a different approach than I had used up until then. So uh, that led to starting Buddhist Insights um, three months later, actually. Wow. <laughs> Very quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with Bhante Sudazo, who is um, a Buddhist monk, um, an American monk that I met at Bhavana Society. So three months later, we started a Buddhist organization um, that had the mission to connect people in, in urban centers with Buddhist monks and nuns of all different traditions. And um, as my practice, as we ran this organization, my practice deepened and um, also my happiness deepened and my um, sort of overall joy and contentment, um, yeah, became mm. more more in solid, more of a presence in my life. So then I was like, um, I think I'm ready to ordain. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago so, was all of that, was that huge transformation? Almost two years in robes. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to me that your journey is really kind of a common quest. Um, you know, you mentioned wandering through samsara. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what that exactly means to you and, um, if you could give a little bit more context too about um, what it was that were your goals previously exactly. Like I know that you were doing creative fields and journalism. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. So I used to work in the, the fashion industry. I worked as an editor for several different publications. And then, um, um, yeah, I worked um as an art director for several different projects and started indie projects of different kinds. I was always 
aiming for for the best, for something that was um, fulfilling 100%. I thought that I wanted to be a fashion journalist, so I started um, my career at Elle magazine, and then after a while working there, I was like, well, I don't know if I actually really want to do this. I mean, it's all great. I am enjoying this job, but there's something missing, so there must be something else. So, so then I was like, okay, I think I'm going to move to London because um, I think in London I'm going to be happier than in Italy. And um, I'm sure if I'm... I started working there as a trend forecaster. So I was like, oh, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that trend forecasting is a lot more fun than <laughs> than editing um, <laughs> in a fashion magazine. And then I went to London, um, and it was great. Um, and also the job was kind of great. And then after a while, it wasn't that great anymore because everything kind of you get used to it. And there's becomes a little bit like, once again, there's something missing. So I was like, oh, I don't know. London is great, but like the weather is really not that great. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the people are nice, but they're really not that nice all the time. <laughs> not that talkative. And uh, they're a little bit introverted and whatever. Yeah, lots of different things that uh, it's kind of like history repeating over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led for me to come to the United States in the end and um, and do pretty much the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I fell in love. I've had like uh, really meaningful, um, meaningful relationships, but there was always at a certain point something missing. And it wasn't that there was, I, I thought at a certain point that I was just a little bit crazy, uh, <laughs> that there was something wrong with me uh, because there wasn't clearly anything wrong with um um, either with my job or with uh, my relationships or with my friends. Um, it was all things that I had pursued. Um, but there was um, it was more like a sense of lacking. So kind of latent depression, maybe you can call it. So mm-hmm. actually, early I, was, I would get into these bouts of depression, um, of just not quite understanding why I felt the way that I felt. Um, so the, the Buddhist path, the Buddhist teachings um, are quite... Uh, quite profound and they um they delve deeply into the the concept of so i don't know if you're how familiar you are with the buddhist teachings but um the buddha said that they all go um just like all the uh, the footprints of every animal fit into the footprint of an elephant in the same way all the teachings of the buddha fit into the four noble truths and so Mm -hmm. the four noble truths are first um the there is suffering uh, two, there is the cause of suffering, uh, that is desire. Um, the third noble truth is the good news, that there is such a thing as the end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is um, the even better news. Um, this is way the, the way to get to overcome suffering, which is the Noble Eightfold Path, mm-hmm. which is a full comprehensive path that one starts practicing um, to develop wholesome qualities and dispel all the unwholesome uh, qualities uh, of mind. Um, mm-hmm. on hands and um, in the process develops um, the conditions uh, for unconditional happiness so we normally um, experience a happiness that is conditional um, so for example I was happy only if I had a particular job that I enjoyed or if I had um, if I was in a relationship that was of a certain kind so there's that kind of like sort of um inherent dissatisfaction that goes all the way um to 
from um sorry from so the suffering in the buddhist path goes from that kind of like always a sense of um there's something wrong but it goes all the way to the extreme suffering of um death experiencing uh someone that you love uh, that dies or um the climate catastrophe that we are experiencing that produces a lot of suffering for so many different people i was recently in australia and and seeing you know the the fires and being in sydney without having problems um breathing hmm. um people losing their homes um animals wildlife being exterminated so that's really extreme suffering we're not talking about anymore is dissatisfaction but real um tangible suffering suffering uh, that that people experience in the world all the way to famine war uh destruction of any kind um so there's a broad spectrum of suffering um that one starts to understand and acknowledge the fact that all of this suffering exists and why is it there to begin with mm-hmm. um and then finding a solution um so i feel like a lot of time we have glimpses of the of the first uh but then we kind of get stuck in we get overwhelmed um with all the suffering that either we are experiencing or others are experiencing and we kind of just are not capable of of um being of help to ourselves or other people for that matter um so the buddhist teachings i found um extremely powerful to um once again get me to have a bit of a glimpse of um of my experience a glimpse of reality of actually how things were um and why i was experiencing the world in this way and um and how my experience of the world could be different so that's how the path um been just by following the path i never like set you know my mind going like oh i think i'm going to be a monastic now hmm. but rather it was more okay I'll, i'm i'm curious to experience um i'm curious to practice this because it it has been the first um effective thing that i've done my practice developed then um as i mentioned earlier i became happier and happier and then it came to a point where i was like well what do i want to do in life and i thought well i just want to be happier and um <laughs> and the natural um progression of the path is to ordain as a monastic so um you know at that point i had tried so many different things in life um and to be a little bit dispassioned um about trying uh, some more others i was kind of like yeah i've been there done that <laughs> been there done that been yeah. done that um you really have because i mean i'm just i read about your career um which i think you've been a little bit humble about actually <laughs> because i mean people might be fascinated to know that you worked for procter and gamble you mentioned l replay zoo york echo unlimited vogue um and many others as well and to turn from that to where you are right now in such a short time is a massive change and um from that to even like um i was reading about some of your buddhist practices like the alms practice and the eating practices um could you tell us a little bit about those practices and why they're significant and maybe any links that you have from that ecological suffering that you mentioned mm-hmm. yeah absolutely 
So um, one of the practices that one takes on um, as a monastic, actually the reason why we ordain altogether is um, to practice renunciation, or as I call it, uh, I like to call it JOMO, the joy of missing out. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, um, the goal of Buddhist practice is to develop unconditional happiness. Um, so happiness that is not connected to one particular thing that we crave. Mm -hmm. uh, so we tend to think once again, oh, if I have ice cream, I'm going to be happy. If, um, I don't know, I have salad and I don't like salad, I'm going to be unhappy. Or if I have um, uh, Chinese food, I don't like Chinese food, I'm going to be unhappy. But I have, if I have Thai food, then I'm going to be happy. Um, so there's always so many different conditions that we put in terms of our experience. Um, so as a monastic, we take um, vow of poverty and of reliance on other people. So we stop handling money and um, we live entirely on the generosity of, of mm, lay people who decide to support us out of free will. And um, this is a genius, actually, uh, genius system designed by the Buddha 2,500 years ago in order for both the monastic order to be uh, to practice generosity and for the lay people to practice generosity. Uh, so when I first went to a Buddhist monastery in, um, it was actually in Italy, uh, close to where my parents live in, in Rome. Um, it was a monastery from the Ajahn Chah uh, Thai forest tradition. Um, mm -hmm. The name is uh, Santa Chittarama. And I remember going there and, and that was the first time I had ever actually met a monastic of any tradition. And um, I was observing how they lived. And I remember thinking, wow, if they, these monks weren't following all these precepts, they would be hermits. But because they have to follow these precepts, I am here. I'm capable of, I have the opportunity to uh, connect with them and ask them questions and learn about their practice. The monastic order is, in, in Buddhism works in a different way. And um, especially in the Theravada tradition, which is somewhat um, closest in, in certain respects and how we follow the, the monastic precepts to the time of the Buddha, so 2,500 years ago, we take all these vows um, of poverty. So we don't handle money, as I was mentioning, and we don't, um, uh, we don't have a job uh, as, in, as in like going and uh, getting a um, a wage. Mm -hmm. uh, we have lots of jobs, but they're all unpaid yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, within the monastery. So we rely entirely on, on lay people. And one of the practices is um, to go on alms rounds. Um, so there are in the West, since I'm in the West and not in a Buddhist country, uh, we do it a little bit uh, more rarely than in um, fellow uh, Theravada countries. So in Thailand or in Sri Lanka, that would be or in Burma, that would be a daily practice that monastics mm -hmm. will do. So they will go on alms rounds. So we have a begging bowl yeah. and we'll go out of faith and eat whatever people will offer us um, uh, during that day. So here in, uh, in, in the United States, uh, Bhante Suddazo and I and all the monastics who come at Buddhist Insights, we normally do that once a week. Um, but there are some monasteries actually also in the West that do it every day and um, Pacific Hermitage actually in the, in the West Coast here in the United States does it every day. And there was also um, 
a monk. He's not a monk anymore. He disrobed, but um, his name is Pamuto. He was a wandering monk. So he actually did it in Massachusetts. He was just um, wandering and just living out of faith. Um, and the reason why we take this practice is actually to once again, create the opportunities for people to practice generosity and for us to practice um, generosity in terms of time. So sharing the Dharma with the lay people, uh, but also um, being content. So instead of focusing on, oh, like right now it's morning, so I would like a muffin and someone gives you a slice of pizza, for example, <laughs> or maybe that they give you like something that you don't, whatever you don't like, um, meat, for example, and you're a vegetarian. Um, having, instead of focusing, oh, I wish that it was something else, rather thinking, oh, it's so kind that this person has even bothered donating anything to me. Mm. Um, so wonderful that someone actually wishes for me to, to, to keep being alive, keep practicing. Mm. Um, and it's a very simple life. So you start looking, it creates the conditions in order for you to look at your mind, um, see how much attachment there is um, to food um, or to so many other things in, uh, in life and, um, and become content. Um, start thinking, well, it's, it's great that I have food rather than I wish that the food were different. Hmm. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that thinking that you're Italian and your religion growing up with food and yeah. now you more or less renounce what and, and just accept whatever food is available so you're literally given food in the street it is it is actual food people don't put money in the bowl or anything like that do they so we tell people so when sometimes uh, if people are not familiar with who we are and uh, what we're doing which is most of the time <laughs> <laughs> we're in the west uh, they will try to give us money and we explain to them that um we don't handle money we thank them obviously for their generosity but we tell them that we don't handle money uh, but that we do accept donations of food and we explain what the practice of going alms round is and um people are quite happy actually they're so happy that um uh to to give the gift of food uh, mm. which is something so visceral, so tangible. Um, mm. um, so we never, we never actually had any problems. Actually, it's been, it's really, it's been a way to connect to so many different people um, who are not familiar with Buddhism um, or not even remotely interested in, in spiritual practice, but um, just find it quite. I'm just quite amazed, actually, that someone in, you know, in a capitalist world is not interested in money, but, mm. <laughs> but um, lives as a renunciant. So mm. I would say for the average person, it's actually quite inspiring. And it was inspiring to me as well when I, I, met, I first came in touch with monastics. Um, mm. So there's def different practices that we take on. One of them is alms rounds, but then obviously we... Um, we sell all our belongings, uh, sell all our belongings. We get rid of all our belongings mm. <laughs> before ordaining. Yeah. Um, some sell it, some just give it away. Mm. <laughs> and um, uh, then we have, we only wear pretty much a bed sheet. <laughs> mm, <yeah. laughs> 
Wow. Uh, <laughs> that um, has been, well, in the Theravada tradition is pretty much kind of like how it's been since the time of the Buddha. So we, so it's goodbye tailoring. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a, hard to imagine for someone coming out of the fashion industry. so um just and just staying with food at the moment because i know that you have another practice which is where you actually um find a lot of joy out of not eating at all for most of the day uh is it from midday yes so afternoon actually after solar noon so sometimes in the summer that is um at 1 p.m Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, we have the practice of not eating after solar noon. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we go on alms rounds. Generally, we have our meal at 11 a.m. here at the, at the monastery. Um, so after the main meal, we don't eat anything. And then it's um, in the morning, we'll have a usually breakfast and then um, and then lunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going on alms rounds and then it's, it will be just whatever is given to us um, during that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's um, a practice once again of simplicity, um, of renunciation. It creates a lot of conditions in order for for one to realize. So there's nothing morally wrong, obviously, in having dinner. Mm. Um, so the precepts in in Buddhism are quite different than the Ten Commandments, so to speak. So mm-hmm. it's not that the Buddha was like, "Oh, you should do this," you know, because it's wrong. But rather, it's some there are ethical reasons which have if you if you kill people it will have um it's a cause and consequence so you the cause um of killing the cause is killing and the consequence will be of harm both for the person who is um killed or the living being who has been killed uh, but also ultimately for yourself Hmm. Um, it will create lots of Uh, distress and suffering in the mind um, and will shape up your experience of reality in a very harmful way. Um, So there are obviously moral precepts that we take, like not killing, um, but then also precepts that are just training rules. So um, things that don't have any kind of moral implication, but rather create the conditions for us to observe our mind in um, in a constrained reality. Um, so, for example, the Rockaway Summer House, our um, retreat center prior to the current monastery here, uh, we used to have a garden, mm-hmm. and um, and I was still a layperson actually back then, so. Um, we would, uh, the vegetable garden that we had, we would um, use uh, the vegetables for the retreats, for the residents, and then we would do lots of um, food giveaways to the community. And then we would do also like dinners by donation, vegan dinners by donation for the the community. And um, we would invite different people um, to to cook. So uh, sometimes we had the Jamaican dinner, sometimes we had the um Chinese dinner sometimes we had the Italian dinner which was the one that I cooked and um and so far and so forth um and I remember the first dinner we had since I was following the eight precepts so I had vowed not to eat afternoon um we had uh our Jamaican friend who started making this uh delicious food um like 
from after lunch all the way in the afternoon and there were all these smells in the air and it was incredible and then we invited the people uh, to eat and everybody was eating in front of me and I was looking at them and I was so full of distress no just obsessing about how much I wanted to eat that food and <laughs> at people like complimenting the food and having the greatest time of their lives and I was like oh this is so horrible and terrible and then I remember eating then the leftover food the day after and going like oh actually this is not even that great and it wasn't that the food wasn't great it was that I had obsessed about it so much that by the time I actually ate it um it couldn't meet the expectations like the story that the mind had built up um kind of like i don't know if it ever happened to you like when <laughs> i remember when i was an adolescent and i would obsess with like whatever person <laughs> and i get would get really infatuated and then i would go out on a date and then i was like hmm, actually this person <laughs> is not really that great <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it wasn't that the there was anything wrong with the person it was more that I had created this whole like movie in my head so it was the same with the food and then the same thing with the Chinese uh, dinner and then by the time it came um that I made the the Italian dinner so we haven't my culture is very there is a big emphasis on being generous with food so we're like a way through which um you know we share um that we care for people or like there's a big sense of hospitality so I remember like you know this uh, kind of Italian grandmother coming out of me <laughs> mm, yeah. where I was really happy to to give food to people and um I realized that instead of obsessing of how much I wanted to eat the, the vegan eggplant parmigiana that I had made I was actually a lot happier that people were enjoying the food um, so we have this wholesome quality called mudita um, that we want to um, develop in um, in Buddhism. And mudita means um, rejoicing in other people's happiness. Um, so that's when I was actually practicing this. So I remember going like, wow, when I actually focus on how how I'm happy for people to being to be happy, my mind is happy too like mm -hmm. <laughs> but when I focus on how much I want to have the same experience that other people are having um when I crave something then my mind is unhappy mm. so I since then um being on be, not eating afternoon has never been a problem actually I love being being surrounded by people who are having dinner for example these days because I practice mudita so mm -hmm. I do it now intentionally. I go like, oh, I'm so happy that uh, this person is enjoying their meal. So happy that they're having, you know, the whatever dish that they, um, that they wanted right now. And my mind is full of joy. Mm. It seems like that joy that you experience from others, in this case through food, but maybe in other ways too, that extends beyond just humans, doesn't it? Because you, you started to talk a little bit earlier about the suffering of all beings in the earth community and you mentioned all the issues we have here in Australia, the suffering, wildlife and um, landscapes and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about what the natural world brings to your life as a Buddhist? 
yeah so the um the forest tradition actually of uh, Ajahn Chah, as I was mentioning, uh, was the first Buddhist tradition that I um, encountered in this lifetime anyway. Hmm. <laughs> and um, that is also called the forest tradition. So normally monasteries um, are located in, in, in the wilderness and um, there's a big emphasis on actually being in with nature. Right. And so one of the things that we try to do with Buddhist practice is seeing things as they are as they really are and um nature unless it's um you know <laughs> destroyed by uh or distorted by humans so in urban centers you will see very little nature everything is actually um supernatural in a <laughs> unnatural way mm. <laughs> like everything is concrete everything is you know buildings there's very little very little wilderness so everything is very artificial but when you actually go in the wilderness um you have a glimpse um there are so many different things that you learn um by just observing nature of how of what the nature of reality is um to begin with so there's always been a strong uh, connection. The Buddha also attained awakening under under a tree. He was always um, uh, encouraging the monastics to to go out in the forest. Um, and there's lots of different precepts, as I was mentioning earlier, um, that we take on, um, not only as monastics, but just as Buddhist practitioners. And one of them is not killing. Um, and that extends not only to human beings, like in the Christian tradition, but rather to any single being. And at the very beginning, this was actually quite difficult for me. Um, so we, in the retreat center that we had, um, the, the previous one, the Rockaway Summer House, we had an ant infestation when we arrived there. Mm. And it was insane. <laughs> um, constantly, like, ants going everywhere. You had, like, a drop of, like, sugar, like, and uh, there would be millions of ants. And we take the precept of not harming them, so we couldn't, um, you know, kill them. And each time it was like um, sweeping them really carefully to bring them outside. And you do it once, you do it twice. Um, I was, my mind was so full of rage. I was like, oh, this is so stupid. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. Like, why can't we just call the exterminator? Like, this is not a way to live. And creating all this distress. Um, and so the very beginning, it was really difficult just to practice this um, um, not killing. And that's why a lot of times in Buddhism, you, you hear about, instead of talking about compassion, you talk about non-harming. So that's what I was practicing. We practice at the very beginning. We practice simply not harming. Mm -hmm. So I was practicing over and over again, not harming the ants, and then also looking at how my mind was trying to trick itself into, sometimes I would like, you know, turn the water casually so that the <laughs> maybe would get the ants to go down the drain. And then I would go like, okay, actually you are harming the, the ants <laughs> practicing willful ignorance. <laughs> so then you bring back to, okay, not harming the ants. Um, and as I did this practice, um, after a year, I remember I was washing the dishes and I see an ant in the um, in the in the sink, and my impulse was to reach the ant with my finger, uh, pick her up, 
and bring her to safety. And I remember still that moment because I noticed, wow, I had an instinct of compassion towards this aunt. There was no hatred at all. And non-harming has shifted into compassion. Um, and I am now incapable of killing ants or any being. It's actually uh, in- unconceivable for my mind. Um, I'm so surprised that I was ever able to kill insects. Mm, (laughs) But I exterminated so many insects um, as a lay person. In fact, prior to Buddhism, I thought it was completely crazy not to kill kill insects. So it's noticing how how our mind is constantly full of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it needs these precepts. It needs external... um, the Buddha, actually, the Pali word for sila, which we normally call, uh, sorry, the, the Pali word for that, what we call normally morality is sila, but the actual literal translation, it's habit. Mm. So what the Buddha does is, is gives us um, all these tools to develop new habits that are wholesome. So it's basically no different than going to the gym and, mm. um, you know, doing certain exercises in order to develop certain particular Uh, qualities of the body Uh, we do the same with the mind we start training it so that um, it can generate wholesome wholesome qualities of compassion and once you start developing also the these um these wholesome qualities of the mind then you start understanding better your experience of reality in buddhism the bodhisattva vows that we take um, and I find them very beautiful and very pertinent, actually, in this time that we're experiencing, because one, there are um, four vows that we take, and it's um, the first one goes like, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Uh, the second is, delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. The third is, the Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The fourth one is, Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. So there's always this um, you know, if you think beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Um, it's no different than what Mother Teresa, for example, mm-hmm. when going to India, that was the attitude of boundless compassion. Mm-hmm. If you go to India, you can, it, it's kind of like if you want to, um, you know, uh, help every single person who has uh, illness or, um, feed everybody who's hungry it's you have the sensation that it's just like uh you know trying to empty the sea with uh with a cup like you're never going to be able to <laughs> to to end the job um but if you go with that attitude of it doesn't matter beings are numberless i vow to save them i vow to really go go and do the job no matter if i'm not going to you know, bring it to an end, but Mm. I will do the job. And similarly, when you start having a realization of your mind of going, wow, it's so full of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's so much greed and hatred and delusion outside as well. It's it's inexhaustible. It doesn't matter. I vow to end them. I vow to end Mm. my delusions. I vow to end the delusion of it's outside myself as well. And all the practices that we do um, that are, so so many and so so many different um, so different we we vow to to perfect them to really master them sometimes it can get i don't know if you ever 
mm, uh, practice meditation, but it can in time look like feel wow, <laughs> like whoa, this can be quite difficult. Um, there's lots of lots of stuff that can come up. Mm. Um, but you still commit to the practice. You still go and, and say, yes, I know this is wholesome. I know this is for the benefit of all beings, not only my, myself. And that's also the aspiration that we take. Yes, I want to become someone who is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. That is one of the most ambitious things that one can ever um, aspire to. Forget about like working for L or, <laughs> or doing whatever random thing. It's like a mind full of free a mind free of uh greed hatred and delusion you go to any like average psychologist they'll tell you you're insane <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess um for some listeners they might be hearing you and saying well you talked about going and doing the job and boundless compassion and also sitting on a cushion meditating um how does meditation impact the world when we're facing such you know extreme crisis um, that's a great question. Um, it's kind of like if you have to run the marathon. If tomorrow someone tells you, if you run the marathon, um, you're going to be able to save everyone. If you haven't trained, it's very difficult to run the marathon. After two minutes, you're going to be like on the floor, <laughs> like <laughs> completely exhausted. Um, so you need some um preliminary practices in order to be able to run the marathon so and also while you're running the marathon actually um if you, there's different practices that you're doing while while at it um so meditation um is first of all when in western buddhism we tend to think of meditation being the entire buddhist path but it's actually just one part of the buddhist path mm -hmm. Noble Path is the medicine that the Buddha gave us, and it's eight things fundamentally that we need to develop. And the first one is right view, um, so mm -hmm. basically an understanding of where we're going, what the objective is, um, and what the path is, what we need to develop. Um, right intention, so anything, um, once we have developed right view, um, our life is going to be uh, sort of um, primed with the, the right intention um, to, to develop um, all of these wholesome qualities. Um, then there's right speech, right action, right livelihood, uh, which is basically what we do through with body, speech, and mind in every day, and ultimately what we, um, what we do in, um, as a livelihood. So where is uh, commonly what we do as a job? So where is our... Where's our source of food coming from, our shelter? How do we get um, these things? And there are certain, certain ways in which the Buddha said, this is a wholesome livelihood and this is an unwholesome livelihood. Um, so for example, um, uh, selling intoxicants um, to people, it's wrong livelihood. Or um, being in the army and killing people is wrong livelihood. Like all things that do not harm um, yourself and others are right livelihood. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's right effort, uh, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So we tend to focus on the end of the Noble Eightfold Path, and we forget about all the other, <laughs> the other parts, which are um, quite important. Um, so the, it's 
So meditation is, um, I'll give you an example, actually, a very practical example. Uh, we have chickens, rescue chickens that live here at the monastery. And the other day they were um, attacked by some dogs that um, uh, came in and saw the chickens and they were running around and the chickens uh, got completely crazy and they were scared. And I went outside and I'm actually normally afraid of dogs. Um, but I saw the, the chickens endangered and... Um, it was one of the great times where the practice really worked. Mm. <laughs> and I had um, very little anxiety, very little agitation, but I was actually pervaded, my mind was pervaded with equanimity. And I just went to the dogs and I told them to stop. And the dogs, because I was calm, stopped. Mm. And they sat and they actually like were very tranquil. Um, and I managed to get, go then to the chickens, uh, pick them up and put them in the coop, um, all in a very calm way without losing it. Mm, wow. <laughs> and, uh, four years ago, had this same thing happened, I would have, um, gone outside, start yelling, going like, ah, what is happening? <laughs> ah! <laughs> and probably I assume that the, the dogs would have gone crazy. Maybe they would have bitten me. Maybe they would have harmed the chickens. They, the chickens would have probably um, harmed themselves by um, going in places that they weren't supposed to, to go because they were already agitated um, and so far and so forth. And the only reason why I was able to actually act skillfully and effectively um, the other day was thanks to um, meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And as you develop uh, the qualities of mindfulness and concentration together with um, the trainings of morality, so the Buddha once again spoke about right mindfulness, right concentration, and he also spoke about wrong mindfulness and wrong concentrations. So wrong mindfulness, for example, would be the, the wrong mindfulness that a cat displays. A cat can be very, very mindful, uh, while killing, while trying to kill um, <laughs> a, a mouse, for example. And that is wrong mindfulness. So you're applying it in a very wrong way. But he's very aware of his surroundings, very aware and calm of every single moment of his breath. That is not in accordance to Dhamma. It's not for the benefit of living beings. So developing all these skill sets then allows you to actually um, be very much effective um, to be able to make an impact it boosts your compassion it creates the like real good nourishment for compassion and action without meditation i would have never been able to to cultivate um those qualities of calm and and groundedness and i guess the, the the example of the chickens is is great because it's immediate and it's doable you are actually able to do something in that situation um, but I guess extending it to a much bigger scale it could still apply even with a global issue like the climate crisis uh, whereas a lot of people I find are really they feel the the love and care for this planet but they're burning out mm-hmm yeah, that's the first thing that happens whenever um, an uncultivated mind, and we all have uncultivated minds, so unless you are an enlightened being, um, we're always in the process of cultivating our minds. 
Um, but if we don't have the Dharma, which is why it's so important, why I'm so grateful for, for the teachings to still be available these days, when we don't have the, the Dharma, then um, we're, we're basically, it's kind of like trying to go to Canada without having a map. We're going to go, you know, sometimes we're going to go in the right direction, sometimes we're going to go in the wrong direction, sometimes, you know, we're going to go in the opposite direction. Mm. <laughs> sometimes we're going to backtrack. Like, it's just going to be take so, so much more time. And of course, it will create exhaustion. Of course, it will create burnout. But um, creating a grounded mind, using these, these, um, these powerful teachings to become better people, more compassionate people, then um, absolutely makes a difference. Yeah, and the other thing probably that's helpful, that you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's not going to, it's not sort of dependent just on you, um, that, and there are many others, you know, generations from now who will continue this work and maybe it can't be solved in your lifetime or just by one person. I guess that kind of lets you relax a little bit and just get on with doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wh which is why I find the vow to, once again, do the work uh, without expectations mm. uh, to be powerful. Um, we tend to have very much this, um, sometimes actually very ego-driven um, um, desire to help others, you know, going like, well, mm. I am going to be the one solving mm. whatever issue it is. We're rather just going, I will do my best uh, to solve this issue, knowing that maybe there won't be any solution to this issue, or I won't be able to see it. Maybe I will die tomorrow, um, but I will still like do my best from right now to tomorrow. What can I do? How mm. can I help? How can I be of benefit to to all beings? How can I support other activists? Which is another thing that we do a lot um, mm. in the mission of Buddhist insights. We we try to. Um, not only do things ourselves, but also create the conditions for other people to to be empowered, to um, to bring forward um, good things in the world, to connect with one another. So, creating a place, for example, also where um, people can can build community is an incredible mm -hmm. thing. Um, everybody should be focusing on that. And it's not only in Buddhist circles, but everywhere. Like this is, if anything, right now, uh, we should be connecting more with fellow fellow human beings. Mm, it's beautiful that you, ha you have chosen that country, the US, to, um, to have this monastery and to be this, at least a step towards a balance in that country. Um, uh, you provide weekend free weekend retreats every weekend um, in yeah. New Jersey, um, Empty Cloud Monastery. Can you tell us what would somebody, you know, what, what would, could we expect if we went on one of those retreats? And, and what do people say about the experience? Um, so since uh, December 2016, um, we were, well, we've been, the organization first started um, at the Rockaway Summer House, so in Rockaway Beach in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and we started a retreat center, and every weekend we were offering free retreats uh, for people to come. Um, and now we just moved to Empty Cloud Monastery, so it's a larger facility, and we've operated since day one on generosity. Mm -hmm. um, so everything that we do is um, 
offered entirely um, on the on free will donations. So people support the monastery and the organization and however they can. Um, and if they can't, it's totally okay too. Mm -hmm. um, so there is never any suggested donation or any um, requested donation, um, suggested or requested. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, people can either bring in-kind donations, monetary donations to help with the, well, now we have a mortgage before we used to have a rent. <laughs> and um, um, they can come and volunteer cooking or um, cleaning up or doing administrative work. So there's lots of different ways in which people come in and help out um, and have been able to make this possible in the capital of capitalism, actually, for the mm. past four years and creating the conditions for this beautiful monastery now to to come into being and normally all of our retreats are silent retreats so what happens is that people come and um, um, we practice uh, guided meditation so there's always a monastic that will lead or monastic or a group of monastics um, leading meditation um, so sharing the teachings of the Buddha with people mm -hmm. um, then we have um, periods of Q&A, of discussion. Um, uh, then there is uh, normally a work period. So um, we have different tasks that can be from working in the kitchen once again to um, the garden. Um, so gardening, create, harvesting food or growing food or <laughs> doing whatever different chores uh, outside or preparing beds for, for the community um sweeping the floor different yogi jobs so, so that's normally like an hour um a day um of work and um people have been really enthusiastic apparently otherwise uh, we wouldn't be here <laughs> yeah so there's um yeah there's been always um lots of gratitude because once again this this practice is really powerful and also the practice of being in silence we tend to communicate like communicate all the time with people so silence creates that container where we have to um start paying attention more and more deeply to our moment to moment experience and through that practice um we start developing wisdom we start developing understanding um of how things are um and also developing a more peaceful mind um we start dispelling the boredom. I haven't been, I haven't experienced boredom in I don't know how long, like so many years. Because <laughs> um, you're only bored when you're not mindful, when you're not paying mm -hmm. attention. So that brings, once again, lots of happiness, uh, which is why um, we didn't invent anything really. We actually just, uh, the model that this organization uses is the one that has. Um, happened in Asia for the past 2,500 years. So, so we literally just uh, kept the tradition alive. And um, the Buddha have lots of faith clearly in the Buddhist teachings and, and in the Buddha. He crafted this tradition in such an enlightened way, hmm. um, knowing that just by following the system, um, the system is so carefully curated that you it creates the conditions for for wholesomeness um, to happen in the mind and for generosity to happen spontaneously. So people have been kind enough to, um, to just support without us ever 
um, having to ask, uh, I mean, to put, to put a price tag or to commodify the Dharma. Mm -hmm. So anyone is encouraged. It's a very diverse community, uh, pretty much anyone of all age and ages and backgrounds and ethnicities um, comes. Uh, there's hardly a majority of Americans mm -hmm. <laughs> at our retreats. We're all from, there's hardly ever actually one particular country that is um, represented. We have people from like Italy <laughs> or Jamaica or Vietnam or Australia or, you know, France, um, you, you name it. Africa, we had a few countries, people from a few countries in Africa. Um, yeah, lots mm -hmm. of different countries. Um. <laughs> that sounds so beautiful that that is just available every weekend, you know, a complete contrast to the brokenness of society and the community that you're building and that everything you need <laughs> seems to appear for you. It's, yeah. it's really beautiful. We're going to have to wrap up shortly, but um, I was just wondering if you have any other readings or um, some wisdom from your teachings that you would like to share with us. Hmm. Uh, maybe I'll just read this passage of the of the of a sutta from <laughs> from the Buddha's teachings. Thank you. Uh, so it's from the Manjima Nikaya um, eighty two, and it goes. So this is Master Ratapala. Actually, I'll give a little bit of context. So Master Ratapala, one of the disciples of the Buddha, talking to um, the king, and he says. What do you think, great king? Do you reign over the rich Kuru country? And the king replies, Yes, Master Ratapala, I do. What do you think, great king? Suppose a trustworthy and reliable man came to you from the east and said, Please know, great king, that I have come from the east, and there I saw a large country, powerful and rich, very populous and crowded with people. There are plenty of elephant troops there, plenty of cavalry, chariot troops, and infantry. There is plenty of ivory there and plenty of gold coins and bullion bought on worked and worked and plenty of women for wives. With your present forces, you can conquer it. Conquer it then, great king. What would you do? And the king replies, we would conquer it and reign over it, Master Ratapala. And then Master Ratapala goes, what do you think, great king? Suppose a trustworthy and reliable man came to you from the west, from the north, from the south, from across the sea, and said, please know, great king, I have come from across the sea, and there I saw a large country, powerful and rich. Conquer it then, great king, what would you do? We would conquer it too and reign over it, Master Ratapala. Great king, it was on account of this that the blessed one who knows and sees, accomplished and fully enlightened, said, life in any world is incomplete insatiate the slave of craving and when i knew and saw and heard this i went forth from the home life into homelessness <laughs> so i found this very beautiful because it pretty much is um it's in a nutshell greed and mm -hmm. uh, master Rattapala just shows the king that his greediness for more and more from countries from ruling over more and more people ruling over more having more and more power is insatiable it doesn't matter if it's like next door if it's across the sea if it's from the north from the south his um you know reaction will be always the same to mm -hmm. want to accumulate and amass more and more 
Um, and that was, you know, the experience that I had that um, we were talking about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but I never was able to formulate until I found um, the Buddhist teachings. And so once again, life in any world is incomplete and satiate the slave of craving. Mm. There is no end to craving. Um, if we don't follow the, you know, if we don't actually end it mm. <laughs> endless, like if we just let it go, it's, um, letting it be in, you know, just keep following the craving. It will always be there. Uh, there is no, how many, how many things have we craved in the world? How many times did we think, oh, if I only buy this dress, I'm going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And you buy the dress and then it doesn't matter how to like closet, multiple closets full of clothing and it was never enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, there's something so eternal and relevant to all of us in that story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you so much. It's been yeah. great talking to you. Yeah. And um, so People can get in touch with you on the website of the Empty Cloud Monastery. Is that is that right? Um, on Buddhist Insights. Buddhist Insights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. BuddhistInsights.com. Yeah. So thank you so much. It's been a real privilege to get to hear your story. It's an extraordinary journey you've been on through samsara and now to what seems like a pretty nice. Uh, experience of joy and i really um hope that that continues well into your life in the future oh thank you so much mm. and same wish to you as well <laughs> thank you the thresholds team at rahamim live work and create this podcast on the lands which have been and always will be wiradjuri country we give our respect and gratitude to the elders past present and emerging continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea, facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.